Welcome everyone to the inaugural episode of Moonshine Murmurs. I'm Megan Brooks, social media and podcast director of Stillhouse Press, a nonprofit independent small press based in Northern Virginia. We publish fiction, nonfiction, and poetry from writers both emerging and established. We're especially drawn to titles that transcend genre, take risks, and form a content, inform, or don't exactly fit the world of big publishing, despite their obvious quality. Since this is the first episode of Moonshine Murmurs, I'd love to take a brief moment to explain the podcast and press. Stillhouse Press is a teaching press staffed by undergraduates, graduate students, and alumni affiliated with the creative writing program at George Mason University here in Fairfax, Virginia. Along with Fall for the Book, Poetry Daily, the Choose Center for International Writers, and the Northern Virginia Writing Project, Stillhouse Press is part of Watershed Lit, Center for Literary Engagement and Publishing Practice at GMU. The podcast will be an exploration of Stillhouse's newest poetry collection, How to Bury a Boy at Sea, by poet Phil Goldstein. Phil Goldstein is the architect of his own unburdening, offering a rare and unflinching glimpse into the effects of child sexual abuse from the male perspective. Equal parts fury and calm, Goldstein's poems contemplate family, faith, masculinity, and their survival, delivering a powerful account of recovery through verse, from silence and shame to healing and rediscovered intimacy and agency. Phil Goldstein is a poet, journalist, and content maker. His debut poetry collection, How to Bury a Boy at Sea, will be published by Stillhouse Press in April 2022. To be exact, it's April 5th, and it is coming out tomorrow and will be out by the time this podcast airs. His poetry has been nominated for a Best of Net Award and has appeared in the forthcoming The Laurel Review, Rust Plus Moth, Two Peach, Two River View, Awakened Voices, The Indianapolis Review, Linden Avenue, Literary Journal, and elsewhere. Today, Phil and his managing editor, Rose Fitzpatrick, will explore how poetry can act as a vehicle for healing and understanding trauma. Before we begin, I would like to state that this episode contains discussions of childhood sexual abuse and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Thank you for being here today, Phil, to talk to us about how to bury a boy at sea your new volume of poetry. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, thanks. Well, before we start the discussion of your book, would you be willing to read the first poem? Sure. Uh, so this is the first poem from my book, How to Bury a Boy at Sea, and it is titled, We Never Went to the Beach When I Was a Boy. He and I are traveling to an alien shore alone. He commands me to get into our tiny boat. My feet stay stuck, stakes buried in the sand. The waves roll in, briny and filled with seaweed, water that makes me gag when I get washed underneath. He pushes me aboard, 
and clamors in himself, eager, a bird learning to fly. Gulls cry in the gray blanket overhead. He has the oars. We are rowing now. Wow, I feel the need to just pause a minute there and take all that in because there is so much in that very first poem that tells us who the narrator is, who his brother is, and what the situation is. So, Phil, your entire book is a narrative about surviving childhood sexual abuse based on your own survival. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about how this first poem prepares the reader for this book? Sure. Um, So I think it's operating on a couple of different levels. So start with the title, We Never Went to the Beach When I Was a Boy. Clearly, the speaker actually is at the beach. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's this element already being introduced of denying reality, denying the truth, denying what happened to this boy. Mm -hmm. So there's that from the jump. And then I'm trying in this poem to really establish um, a couple of different things. You know, one, these two characters in the boat, the main speaker and his older brother, um, this becomes a recurring metaphor throughout the collection uh, of these two characters being in this rowboat adrift at sea. Um, But also that the speaker is not really in control of what's happening to him Mm -hmm. on many ways, or in many ways, um, that the brother is the one who sort of is commanding, has control, has the ability to sort of set the course of where they're going. And so um, that's another element that is being introduced. And you know, what strikes me when I consider this image that stays in my mind of the two boys in the boat, long after I finished reading the poem, is how they're together but extremely isolated, Mm -hmm. yet also in plain view, because when you're out on a body of water, anyone can see that, right? And so, again, another layer of contradiction and conundrum, which is so fascinating for me. Well, and there are other poems in the collection that sort of speak to that dichotomy or duality where you have things that are happening out in the open or out in plain view, and, you know, there is this whole other level of activity and abuse that's also happening simultaneously that's out of view but is running in parallel to the sort of normal, quote-unquote, activity. Mm. Well, it's a poem that really describes how powerless the narrator was, certainly at the time. Now, your book describes a whole lifespan, right? The narrative begins right before the abuse starts when the narrator is about 10 and goes through his school years, um, and into adult life. It spans the narrator's life up to the present moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes me think about 
your life as a poet. When did you begin writing poetry? And when did you begin writing poetry about your experiences as a childhood, an adult survivor of childhood abuse? Sure. So I started writing poems probably when I was also, you know, around 10 or 11 or so. Um, and, you know, during the time of the abuse, um, wrote poetry in middle school and high school, and it was, you know, predictably really bad. And in college, I did slam poetry and spoken word. Um, and then it really kind of dropped off after I graduated from college. And I didn't really begin writing poetry seriously again until about 2018. I think it was the summer of 2018. And that was a few months after I started doing really concerted um, therapy work to address the, the trauma of the abuse. Um, my therapist really encouraged me to turn to writing as a way to process what had happened and try to kind of funnel my feelings, I guess, um, in a constructive way. And um, it really ultimately proved incredibly cathartic. Um, and I'm really glad that I started down on that path. And if it's all right, I'd like to say that what happened was that when you were 10, your older brother sexually abused you? Yeah, I was sexually abused by my older brother for two and a half years. So mm -hmm. from the time I was 10 until the time I was 12 and a half, um, kind of about halfway into seventh grade. I'm sorry that happened. One of the things that the book makes clear is that it's not just the abuse that was traumatic, but having to hide it, having to conceal it for so long. Yeah, um, you know, that's a big part of certainly my story and the story of a lot of survivors of child sexual abuse. You know, um, the average age of disclosure is 52 uh, mm -hmm. based on the latest statistics that I'm aware of. And, you know, there are a lot of survivors who never speak about what happened to them. They go to their graves having never told another person. And, um, you know, I don't know if that would have been me uh, were it not for some of the factors that kind of came into play, which we could get into. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, for me, it was close to 20 years um, of being silent about what happened. Mm -hmm. And what were some of those factors? Just briefly name a few things that changed your trajectory there. Sure. I mean, I think the biggest one was that I started dating someone um, back in 2017, Jenny, who is now my wife. Congratulations. And thank you. Um, we're actually coming up on our one-year wedding anniversary yeah. in uh, a little bit. Um, and, you know, we were having a lot of problems related to sex and intimacy, and it was causing a lot of tension in our relationship, and she really push me to seek out a therapist to try and figure out what was going on. And I had honestly never consciously put two and two together that the issues that I was having with sex and that I had had with sex with other women were related to the abuse. It just never fully clicked in my mind. Um, maybe it was there on some 
subconscious level, but, um, you know, I wasn't putting two and two together, like I said. And, um, yeah, I, um, you know, I wound up telling that therapist um, about the abuse, and she was the first person in the mm. whole world who I ever told. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so you kept this a secret for a long time, and then your partner, Jenny, lovingly urged you to seek therapy, and that was when you returned to poetry, and those were the first poems you wrote about the abuse? Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. I started therapy initially in kind of the fall of 2017. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, there's a poem or two about that in the book, yeah. um, and... I didn't actually really start writing poetry about the abuse until I started working with uh, a different therapist um, in 2018. And um, you know, I started working with her. I'm still working with her, mm -hmm. um, but I started that work in the spring of 2018. And then in the summer is when I started really picking up the poetry again. Yeah. But I don't want to be real clear that these are not like therapy poems, right? You, you, you have some poems about your first experience going into a therapist's office, mm -hmm. but most of the poems are really about the process of confronting memories, mm -hmm. memories that you yourself as a narrator are reluctant to confront because they're painful, mm -hmm. and also memories that other people, your parents, your brother, others in the community are eager to deny or simply not see. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how the process of confronting memory worked for you as a poet? Sure. Um, I mean, I think that it ran in parallel to the work that I was doing in mm -hmm. therapy of, you know, kind of reckoning with specific memories of the abuse and images that I had and those made their way into various poems in the collection um, in different forms, you know, and with different takes on how I felt about them, you know, mm -hmm. anger, um, sadness, isolation. Um, but I think that as we went through the editing process and the revision process, one of the things that, as you know, I worked on with you and with Tommy Sheffield, uh, our other editor, was um, the idea of weaving in memories from my childhood that were not related to the abuse, that yes. were actually more positive or benign or neutral. And I think that that was a really positive thing for us to do as we're constructing the collection because it really makes the narrator, the speaker, into a more fully three-dimensional person um, and it fleshes out the other characters in the family. And I think it's just more true to life that I had, you know, absent the abuse, I had a pretty normal, safe, loving, um, childhood, you know, grew up in a middle-class family in suburban New York, and it's not like, you know, my childhood was filled with 
depravity and poverty <laughs> and where right. you know I'm locked in a closet for 12 <laughs> hours a day. It wasn't like that. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, I think that that is important to emphasize because I think that one of the things that I want to get across in this conversation and in the book is that child sexual abuse can happen in any home, in mm -hmm. any community. Mm -hmm. It's not like there are, you know, only a set of circumstances where it can happen and where it can flourish and otherwise it can't. Um, it can happen anywhere and it can happen to anyone. And uh, the signs are not always gonna be really readily apparent. Um, you know, I think that there's this misconception, and I've said this in other venues, that, you know, if you've been abused, but then after the abuse or during the abuse, you're not sort of becoming withdrawn or your grades aren't suffering in school or you're not abusing substances or acting mm -hmm. out, then nothing's wrong. Like, you know, because those are the signs that you've been abused, obviously. But there are many responses that uh, people and children in particular can have to trauma. And in my case, it was trying as hard as I could to pretend like nothing was wrong. I that, think that's well said. You know, yeah. I wanted everything to be perfect. Um, I wanted to try and make it so that nobody would ever notice that something was wrong because mm -hmm. if they asked or noticed that something was wrong, I was afraid of what might spill out. Well said. I think for survivors reading this book and people who want to understand what it means to be a survivor, that that is really key, not just to the book, but to understanding the larger experience. But reading this, you know, not just as a guide to understanding what it is to survive childhood sexual abuse, but as a book of poetry, it's um, compelling to me the way that the poems are centered in images and grounded in imagery and memories that you experienced, right? And that's, I think, what makes um, the poems accessible even to those who have not had this experience. Um, I think some of my favorite poems in How to Bury a Boy at Sea are the persona poems. Mm -hmm. And those uh, fall into two categories. You have, on one hand, human narrators who um, fail to see the abuse or dismiss its importance. And those would be members of your family, right? Um, or the narrator's family. On the other hand, um, there are narrators who bear witness to the boy narrator and his experience. And what I love about the second category of witness-bearing persona poems is that the narrators are inanimate objects. Would you read the poem Luggage for us? Sure. Uh, this is Luggage. I am a hand-me-down with an ancient bronze zipper that snags a bit as it glides across the top. I carry deep in my belly dimpled cardigans, tchotchkes, memories. I have so many memories I want to forget but never will. Right there on the cracked gray floor, the violation. The shag carpet saw it, the washing machine as well. 
We whisper about it when the lights click off. If I carry something with me wherever I go, does it become part of me? Will I slowly lose definition, become a person, a man with a mouth, someone who has the ability to speak but chooses not to? Again, I need a moment to just take that in. Thank you, Phil. The sense of secrecy is so profound in that. This is taking place in a basement. The only witnesses are these inanimate objects, including the narrator whose mouth is zipped shut. Right? But I think for me the most profound line is the question. If I carry something with me wherever I go, does it become part of me? You know, and, and of course, carrying things is the point of luggage, and we all have our luggage that we carry. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if you would expound on this idea that luggage can become part of us. Sure. Um, I think that this is something that a lot of survivors of abuse will hopefully recognize, which is that silence and the heaviness of the shame and the secrecy and the wanting to deny the abuse really does become this ever-present cloud that kind of follows you around or it becomes like your wallet, you know, the thing that you put in your pocket every time you walk out the door. And it's something that never really goes away. You can't really separate yourself from it. And so then, as more time goes on, if it's something that's always with you, does it start to become a part of you the way that your arm is a part of you or your eyes are a part of you, something that you can't get rid of? It's just there. And um, that's something that I really wanted to try and and tease out. I think it's so important for survivors and, and those who support them to understand that abuse is a thing that happens to a person. It doesn't define them. Um, and this poem expresses that truth so eloquently, but also kind of expresses the converse, the fear that it can become a part of a person's identity, whether you will or no. Um, I wonder if you'd also read another persona poem, the one in the voice of the brother, the older brother. Sure. And just to be clear, this is the character in the narration who is abusing the younger brother, who is the main narrator. Correct. The other brother speaks. Even before they shipped me off to special ed in a special school, I had enough sense to know that my brother and I were very different. He spoke like an adult in full sentences at such a tender age. It filled me with madness and wonder. How could it all be so easy for him? I knew he'd always glow in their eyes, like the idol Indiana Jones tries to seal in the Peruvian jungle, golden and radiant a sun to warm their pale tri-state skin in January. At night, I would peer out from the top bunk at home across the small parking lot to the enclosed dumpsters. 
remembering the broken beer bottles we passed by amid games of manhunt, their necks sheared off in crooked peaks like a brown city skyline, the faint aroma of lager clinging to the jagged edges amid a deeper bouquet of rancid chicken and sour milk. I had not consciously resolved that I would touch him, transform him, steal the idol, unleash a rumbling in the deep. I wanted and I wanted and I wanted and I just wanted to do, but I hadn't thought of what that something would be or what it would even mean. But breaking my brother is what I wound up doing anyway. Maybe, I figured, if I could make him as broken as me, they would see us in the same damp light that seemed to cling to my skin like film. After I broke him, if they ever wanted to drink for my brother again, they'd just have to get used to the taste of blood on their lips. You know, as your editor, I've read that poem many, many times, and one of the amazing things about this book is that it provides such great reread value. I see new things each time, and this time, as you were reading it, I suddenly realized how biblical this story is. You know, many of your poems talk about um, your Jewish faith and stories from uh, from the Bible and the Old Testament um, that I'm familiar with. And so here we have, you know, one brother, an older brother, jealous of the other. But the language that other brother, the older brother, uses to narrate this poem is, um, talks about Indiana Jones, <laughs> the, you know, and the idol. I think that is fascinating, too. And another thing about this poem is that it's got a full emotional life just unto itself. This single poem expresses jealousy, rage, bewilderment, vulnerability, power, the will to harm, and then something else I think a little harder to define, which is like not the unwillingness to harm, but just sort of like the randomness of harm. He hadn't decided to do a particular deed. It just kind of happened, right? And yet there's also a compassion in this poem, in allowing the other brother to be seen so fully, not as a two-dimensional monster. And I think in a way it's more horrifying this way, but it's also, it's also more human. Would you talk to me a little bit about what it took to write this poem? Yeah. This was a really hard poem to write. Um, You know, it's one that I think you and Tommy um, really urged me to consider writing, you know, poems from the point of view of my brother, of my parents. Um, And it was difficult to try to get into that headspace um, because I have never really fully received to my, you know, understanding and to my feeling, a satisfactory explanation from my brother or anyone about 
why he did what he did to me. And so it was difficult to try to get into that mindset. Um, and you kind of see that ambiguity and uncertainty in the poem. Um, and, you know, I think that, like you said, there's that full spectrum of emotions that comes through. Um, but ultimately, I guess it ends with a combination of regret, but also kind of I don't know what the right word is. Maybe resolve that, you know, well, this thing has happened and, you know, there are going to be consequences. You know, if you want to drink from this broken bottle, you're going to have to deal with the fact that you are going to get cut doing that. And how interesting that the consequences are for all the other people, for mm -hmm. the parents and for the younger brother, but not for the other brother who narrates this poem. That's revealing, too, that he doesn't even consider that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's a brave poem to write, and I think um, without exonerating him, it also gives great insight and goes back to what we were discussing earlier, just as someone who is the target of sexual abuse or any kind of abuse can seem fine on the outside, right? Someone who commits abuse also can seem perfectly fine in many ways. Yeah, I think that that's true. Um, you know, there is obviously a motivation and an impulse on the part of the abuser to not betray the fact that they are abusing someone, mm -hmm. um, you know, and maybe that is bound up in its own layer of shame and guilt, but it's also, in my mind, connected to just a desire to conceal yeah. because you don't want people to know, especially your own parents, that you are abusing someone. That is very true. And then from a literary standpoint, that kind of honesty in characterization is really hard to achieve. So well done there. Um, another thing that I find interesting about The Other Brother Speaks, which is consistent throughout um, the, all the poems in this book, is that it's very much a poem of place. The brother describes the bedroom that the two brothers share and then what is outside the bedroom. Um, often there is a sense in these poems of like one location where we are and then another place where we're going or where we could be or someplace seen from afar. Mm -hmm. um, and as a reader, I appreciate that because knowing where I am in a poem about an experience that is so difficult to speak about grounds me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role setting plays in some of these poems. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, it was very important for me as I was revising to make this narrative not kind of allegorical or mythical, that it is a real thing that is happening to a real person who lives in a specific place, has a interior life, has specific people around him. And so it's not extremely obvious, you know, where it's taking place, but, you know, like that reference in The Other Brother Speaks to tri-state skin, you know, you know it's in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, um, and you know it's in suburbia, it's not taking place in a city. Um, and there are a lot of poems that speak to specific locations, you know, some of which are those persona poems that you were mentioning earlier that are of inanimate objects. So a synagogue, a theater stage. Um, so as the book progresses, we're sort of building up this constellation of settings and witnesses and environment in which this experience is playing out over time, um, both over the course of the speaker's childhood, but then into adulthood as well. And there are many uh, poems that you've written about the adult experience long after you, your, your brother goes to a new school and long after you move out of your parents' home. Um, you write about speaking at your brother's wedding. You write about Jenny. I wonder, could you read us one of those poems? Sure. Um, yeah, I'll read the last act. The last act. On a cold April New Jersey Saturday, I was consumed by a bad case of backstage jitters at the wedding of the brother who I once slept under in a bunk bed. I knew it was time to use all those years of practice for this one final play, this role of a lifetime, to toast my brother, hug him as if he were my brother. The audience sat wrapped and waited. I had practiced my lines for weeks, a pantomime of affection. I knew which marks to hit, when to pause for laughter. Champagne glimmered in 200 glasses under the ballroom's bright Klieg lights. I began my performance, slipped back to the rhythms that governed my life for 20 years. I dipped our childhood in amber, elided the truth and anything dark, focusing on summers spent playing kickball in makeshift diamonds. Then came the crucial turn. I extolled my brother's virtues with such seeming sincerity his work ethic, empathy, generosity, 
humility, and love. I choked back black tar. That was the last time I stood on stage in service of someone else's story. Thank you, Phil. So essentially, this book is a response to that moment. Would you say that's true? Yeah, uh, in a way. I think that um, looking back in time, it was a very surreal thing. I had just started um, individual therapy Mm. and had to go to my brother's wedding and be the best man at my brother's wedding and give the traditional best man toast. And I knew that I was starting to kind of break away from the past, break away from the role that I had played in my family for my entire life, which was to put everybody else's emotional needs before my own and to be the good son, be the one who didn't rock the boat, be the one Mm -hmm. who always fulfilled everyone's expectations for me. And I knew that going down this path of confronting the abuse was going to mean that things were going to be different. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, this was basically the last moment when I needed to play this role. And it was really like playing a role in a play, in a film. Mm -hmm. Um, It was very surreal and kind of, looking back on it, had this out-of-body quality to it. Mm -hmm. And um, to be 100% honest, it is the last time that, uh, up until this very moment, that I've seen my brother or my parents. And that was four years ago. And that saddens me on a lot of levels, Um, but it's very clear in looking back at things that it was a real breaking point. It was a real turning point. It was a very specific, um, I don't know, climactic moment almost in time for me that I did this thing, I kind of fulfilled my contract, fulfilled Mm -hmm. my duty, and then I was done. Your duty as you saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can see how that would be a major turning point in your life. You know, um, poems have turning points too. We often talk about the Volta and how it really gets to the heart of where the poem is. This poem functions as the turning point of the book itself, doesn't it? Yeah. And one of the things that I really love about how it fulfills that function is the way it kind of gathers in all of the other poems. I mean, one of the earliest poems talks about the kickball mm-hmm. game, right? And the real affinity you and your brother had, the love that was there, right? But then it also talks about years of 
acting, both literal acting on a stage for fun, but also acting as someone who has to hide abuse and conceal his own trauma. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's all, the whole book up to that point is in there. And so while the narrator is describing his brother's life, the poem is describing the narrator's life. Yeah, I honestly had never really thought about it like that, but I would agree with you that um, it does serve as sort of the collection point, and it is the end poem of the second section in the book. Um, so, you know, um, I think it was a very good idea for us to end that section with the poem. Mm -hmm. You know, often survivors of trauma are advised to do things like write in journals or to meditate or do yoga to help manage the emotional turmoil of memory, especially when they're actively exploring it. And all of those things are wonderful tools. But I think a common experience is that survivors who engage in these uh, activities, right, expect a certain amount of solace from them. But in fact, as time goes on uh, and the emotional work gets harder, not easier, um, sometimes even the things we turn to for solace even evoke extreme emotion. And I'm wondering if you experienced this when writing poems, which are so overtly about trauma. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, there may be a misconception out there about reckoning with trauma, especially if you're doing that creatively, um, that once you start doing it, you're on this sort of glide path mm -hmm. to healing and, you know, it only just sort of gets easier and better and you get distance and closure and all those kind of therapy buzzwords. And <laughs> uh, I guess I'm here to say that's not true and it's not um, really connected to the reality, I think, of a lot of people who deal with trauma in therapy or otherwise, that a lot of times things get worse, and sometimes a lot worse, before they get better. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was definitely true with me in my life, and it's something that we tried to have a little bit of in the book that there are moments, you know, even sort of further into the narrative and the collection when you would think, oh, you know, I'm getting this sense and this feeling that we're getting healing. The speaker seems to be kind of growing in confidence, but then there are clear moments when there is difficulty or backsliding or a feeling of being pulled back into the past. And I think that that is just very true to life of a lot of survivors, especially survivors of child sexual abuse, that um, it's never linear. Mm -hmm. It's never really kind of over. It's a continuous 
process of trying to forgive yourself, trying to find healing, trying to come to terms with what happened and like you said recognize that this is something that happened to you but it's not what defines you yeah. and um, you know like I said I think that we we tried to evoke that in the book by having those poems scattered throughout that really I think show that it's not all unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> Far from it. And yet the book itself is not bleak, right? It's hard reading. Um, and there are poems that definitely have a lot of anger. There are poems that definitely have a lot of grief and shock value to them. But, um, you know, it's not all one dark painting of of woe. Right? No, I it's, mean, yeah. on the contrary, I think that, you know, it is ultimately a very, I think, hopeful book. It is a yes. book that shows that despite the pain and the trauma of something so profound a betrayal as being sexually abused as a child, mm -hmm. that it is eminently possible to achieve healing, intimacy, love, connection, empowerment as an individual. Um, and I definitely want to underline that. Um, and I hope that that's something that people who read the book take away from it. Hmm. I think they will. You know, so you talk about the, the path to healing as one that goes up and down and you know, things are constantly in flux. You know, it never really quite ends. And that kind of reminds me also of the path of the poet, right? Especially when we're revising our work, right? You know, have to kind of go back and revisit things and often change your own perspective of what you thought was true when you wrote it down the first time. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me, specifically as a poet, what were some things you learned from the revision process while we were working on this book? Yeah, I think I learned a lot. Um, I learned to make my language sharper mm. and more concise. I think that we really worked to boil the poems down to their essence, to focus mm -hmm. on you know what is the central idea or image of this poem and how can we get to it sooner and so you know you and I did a lot of work on cutting out on ramping which is basically you know language at the beginning of a poem that is kind of superfluous and isn't really getting to the point of the poem and is kind of getting in the way from what might actually be a sharper and more immediate start to the poem yeah. and so I think that we did that a lot. I was actually thinking about reading a poem that, um, as you will well remember, <laughs> we worked on a lot to reshape and cut down and turn into its essence, and that would be um, memories of my childhood if they had oh, been yes. photographed. Oh, yes, let's have that one. Okay. Memories of my childhood if they had been photographed. In this one, 
My brother and I are under the table, scrawling spirals and twisted shapes we hope will stay hidden over and over. Here, we're waiting to get ice cream, melting in the late summer sun, August almost over. Sometime later, playing in the parking lot, the smell of bubbling asphalt filling our nostrils over and over. We're sprawled out on blank, scratchy carpet, bathed in the darkness of February. Mom and Dad drop off boxes at the new house. He draws my hand to his penis, which he tells me to tug over and over and over. Suddenly, they are calling out from the kitchen below. We zip up our jeans and jackets, filing downstairs. What would have happened if they caught us? What would have followed us out into the icy night? Can you talk a little bit about how the revision process worked there and how it moved from a, a poem that was kind of less focused and how you found the focus of the poem? Yeah, I think originally that poem was much more sprawling. I think it was a poem that ran onto two pages and there was just a lot of focus on different memories um, and the ending was not really well-defined. Um, and I think that as we were revising it, we really honed in on this idea of this recurring language of something happening over and over and the way in which memory kind of recurs like that and picking out these specific memories like you're holding you know kind of three or four Polaroids in your hand almost and those are the memories to hold on to um, so I think that as we revised that poem it really became sharper and cleaner and more direct um, I know that we kind of went back and forth quite a bit about the ending Mm. Um, and I think that one of the things that we worked on a lot in revision for a lot of these poems was ending poems in a way that didn't feel as obvious, I guess, is maybe a right word for it. Yeah. You know, giving more ambiguity mm. to endings and different ways of interpreting things or leaving people with the potential to feel multiple things. Um, I definitely think that that's something that we tried to achieve with, with this poem in particular. Yeah, I do remember that. I remember, and I think this is true for a lot of poets, including myself, right? There's uh, often a struggle to kind of allow the poem to have control of its own ending and not just, like, say what you think the answer is, right, the capital A answer, but to give it some space at the end so it can kind of resonate like a bell. Yeah. And this does that because it speculates on what could have been. Um, so, yeah. I also recall um, that we did a lot of work, including on this poem, um, talking about the importance of titles, mm -hmm. which is some primary real estate. I can't remember what we call what what you called this poem initially. 
I think it was called a packet of photographs. Oh, right, right. Yeah, and there was, you know, kind of an intro um, that really evoked <laughs> that time way back when, when, oh, you know, yeah. you'd get your, your photos developed at CVS or wherever, oh, and, yeah. you know, you had your your packet of pictures and your negatives. And that was the on-ramp, all right. Yeah. I remember that on-ramp. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, we got rid of that and really kind of dove right into yeah. the, the memories. Because sometimes just finding a handful of photographs, whether they're yours or someone else's, is so evocative and, you know, so much more emotion than when you have, like, the whole story to go with it. It makes you wonder. Yeah, that's what know. this poem is about, is wondering. Yeah, you open a drawer somewhere and there's this handful of photographs there and you're like, huh, what are these doing here and why are they collected like this? Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that uh, as we worked on them, we both learned an awful lot about the art of revision. It was, it was really hard sometimes, but ultimately I look back on that and think it was actually kind of fun too, because hard, thinking hard about craft is fun, at yeah. least in retrospect. Yeah, <laughs> at that I mean, time, it's kind of painful. You know, and I just want to give uh, a well-deserved shout out to you oh. and to, you know, the entire kind of operation at Stillhouse being a very collaborative process for me as a writer, especially as a first-time author. Um, you know, I think that when you're working, and this is obviously not a universal truth, but from my understanding, when you're working with larger publishers, mm. there is often not as much collaboration between the writer and the editor, you know. And I think that we developed a really great working chemistry and relationship to make this into the best possible book that it could be. Yeah. Thank you for saying that, Phil. It was a very rich experience for me as well. I learned a lot about my own poetry as, as, as well as the art of editing and thinking deeply about poems that matter as we had our weekly discussions. So thank mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. for, for your hard work and thank you for writing this beautiful book. You know, you and I have discussed the poems in this book so many times over the course of a year. I know you don't have any actual favorites per se, but there's one poem that really keeps coming back to us both, and that's Gibraltar. Would you read that one for us now? Sure. Thank you. Gibraltar. I see you now in the hazy veil of painted twilight, a shadow but not a terror. You were the monster of my childhood whose hand-me-downs once kept me warm. Sometimes, the flash and force of memory shoots me straight back, deeper than I want to go. The way I lie down in a bed is enough to take me to the times when you led me to lie with you. I ache the way a tree must ache when it is chopped and left to stand, gashed open in a summer thunderstorm. I stand now in a field with the sun bleeding away to violet. I stand knowing what I have endured, what I can endure. I'm a promontory, gauzy in sunshine, the sea lapping green below. You are a shadow passing over my face, a cloud, a memory. 
Thank you, Phil. Thank you. I love the way that the identity of the narrator is slowly revealed as a mountain surrounded by the sea. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of places where the 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 speaker could be, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're in a field, they are standing like a tree, um, but ultimately they are alone, but not isolated. Yes. They are standing on their own, of their own volition, with their own power. And I think that that really is connected to that second line that, Mm -hmm. you know, the speaker sees their abuser as a shadow, but not a terror, Mm -hmm. that their presence is there, but it is not threatening in the way that it once was. And that, you know, Imagine yourself as this cliffside in the Mediterranean with a cloud passing over you, casting a shadow on your face, just drifting by. That ultimately is where the memories of the abuse can kind of end up, that you don't really fully forget them. They're never fully gone, but it becomes a cloud that kind of just passes on by. Well said. Again, this poem shows how important both image and setting are to the backbone of the narrative here. And it really communicates, especially when you compare it to the first poem of the book, Right? This is not the last poem, but it's near the end. Um, like the change of the dynamic of power, the change within the main narrator himself. And what I love about Gibraltar in the context of the larger book is the way it conveys all the hope and insight that you just described without a false sense of everything's okay now. Right, It's not exactly a happy ending, but it is a peaceful ending. And the poem gives resonance to the larger work just the way that some of those ending lines allow individual poems to resonate. And I just love thinking about that mountain with the cloud just passing right over it. It gives me, myself, just such a sense of of well-being. What a beautifully crafted image. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and share your poetry. Congratulations again, Phil, on on your book, How to Bury a Boy at Sea. We're all very proud of you here at Stillhouse Press, and I'm grateful that I had a chance to work with you to bring this book into existence. Well, thank you again. Thank you to the entire Stillhouse team. Uh, I really appreciate that I've had the opportunity to work with you and bring this book out into the world. Thanks again.